The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, we're going to get started this evening uh, with our with our message, and I'd like you to turn, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 8. And we're continuing our study of church history. And for these past few weeks, we've really been talking about more recent church history as we've looked at some things from the uh, the 19th century up to the present time. And I've mentioned on occasion that we we do have many writings that come from this period. Of course, we have some from before that as well. But when you get into the 19th century, 18th, 19th, 17th, 18th, 19th century... Uh, then you start to find a lot of writings by Baptists, and particularly in the 19th century, we do have quite a bit of material that comes from that time. And so we have books and sermons, there are uh, systematic theologies that have been written, there are statements of faith. And as you look at those, you really can't have any doubt what it is that Baptists believe during that particular period of time. Uh, in the past couple of weeks or so, I've read a little bit in uh, W.A. Gerald's book on Baptist history, and I found a statement there in which he said that the history of Baptists through the centuries always lead us through one particular strain of doctrine, and he said that is the teaching of God's sovereignty in salvation, that the doctrines of grace always are at the core of what Baptists have taught. Uh, W.A. Gerald published his book in 1894, and at that time he'd not seen the many doctrines and changes of doctrines that Baptist people hold today, and there are many things that Baptists are preaching that, quite frankly, would be unrecognizable to him. But he also wrote about some who had similar to belief, similar beliefs of things that are being preached today, And he just barely acknowledged that anybody who held those kinds of beliefs could be considered to be Baptist. And he said that Baptists have always maintained their views on three things, and that is on God's sovereignty, on the atonement of Jesus Christ, and also on the doctrine of election. Well, something has obviously happened since that time, since 120 years, since uh, the time that Gerald wrote his book or published it. And that is that many Baptist churches have shifted away to where we look at churches that have doctrines like we're holding today, and we appear to be the ones that are out of the theological and historical mainstream of Baptist people. Many Baptists have never even heard of some of the doctrines that we talk about in our church. Uh, They haven't been taught anything about these, and so it just seems very strange to them. And yet, if you go back a, a hundred years... Many of the practices and doctrinal positions that are held today would be just as unrecognizable to our Baptist forefathers. Now, what we've been discussing in this part of the study are are factors that have led to these changes in doctrine. And the greatest influence that we found on doctrine in Baptist churches today is a period called revivalism. That was in the 19th century. And uh, on your lesson sheet, once again today, we're back on this subject, the things that took place during that period of revivalism, and the shift, the main shift that happened during that time was a change in one of our core doctrines, and it's a misunderstanding of that doctrine that in some cases can actually be fatal. Now, thank the Lord for this, that 
people aren't always led to the logical conclusions of a doctrine because they don't completely understand it. And so there are many people who are saved that actually hold uh, to the wrong doctrine, uh, even not knowing exactly what they should believe about it. So many of them don't carry it out to the logical conclusions. The father of all of this was a man by the name of Charles Finney, and we would have to say that his reviews of regeneration, which is the doctrine that we're talking about, are actually fatal. That if you did believe what Charles Finney taught, then there's no way that you could be a Christian. He believed that regeneration starts with man and not with God. He said that it was the responsibility of man to prepare his own heart for the reception of the gospel, and that if a man didn't change his heart, then he wouldn't be prepared for the doctrines of God's grace when they were taught to them. He wouldn't be prepared for the grace of God at all. So Finney's method led to multiple thousands of false conversions, and there were so many of them that by the time his ministry was finished and he was about to die, that he admitted that many of his converts uh, weren't actually saved at all because so many of them had fallen away. And so we talked about this, that in the northwestern part of the United States, where Finney did a lot of his preaching, he left a big black hole there. Uh, It's called the Burned Over District, and still people today are very hard to reach with the gospel in that part of the country. Now, Finney's error on regeneration is called decisional regeneration. And I'll just call your attention to that term once again. And I think that we could call that Finney's disease or Finney's curse because there are many evangelicals today that are still inflicted with it when in fact there was nothing that was taught like it before Finney came along. And yet the defenders of what Finney taught and believed in his methods, people believe that that is actually New Testament doctrine. Now, thankfully, most Baptists have not gone into doctrinal error as far as Finney did. In fact, as I mentioned just a moment ago, if you did that, you couldn't even remotely hope to call yourself a Baptist. So Baptists don't really have those Pelagian tendencies of Finney, although they certainly do have a modified Arminianism that fuels their misunderstanding of regeneration. And they have an exactly backwards understanding of of how regeneration takes place. And that's what we call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And in their order of salvation, they have uh, repentance and faith and then regeneration, which is actually contrary to the old Baptist confessions of faith. And of course, we believe that it's contrary to the word of God. Now, in the last message, we we just sort of stepped all the way through those errors. So I'm not going to return to that subject again this evening. Instead, in this message, we're going to do what I told you we were going to do this morning, and that is we're going to sacrifice some sacred cows. And I was not aware that there were so many of you that didn't even know what a sacred cow is. And uh, that's, that's not necessary to your absolute understanding of all, well, it would be to all things, but you, you don't have to know what a sacred cow is to be a Christian, so uh, that's okay. So I'm going to explain to you what a sacred cow is. A sacred cow is just something that is considered to be above reproach and immune from any kind of criticism, even though it doesn't rightly deserve not to be criticized. That is a sacred cow. It's one of those things that people are afraid to touch. And so we find that in Baptist circles today that there are some practices that are sacrosanct, that that people say, well, you can't touch this. This is absolutely biblical. And they say that it's biblical, even though there isn't a word in Scripture to support what they say. 
Now, the first of these sacred cows, we've actually already killed it last week. I just didn't use the term sacred cow. But the first one was, was the sinner's prayer. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because we did discuss it last week. Uh, there isn't any example in the scripture of anyone in an evangelical sense uh, using a sinner's prayer. Uh, certainly not a formulaic prayer that somebody has to repeat. And you say, well, if you repeat this prayer after me, then, then when you say this, you will be saved. You'll be regenerated. Now, we needn't think that any kind of a prayer is in indispensable to our regeneration. Since we've explained this, that regeneration comes before repentance and faith, and it happens above our comprehension, then whatever you pray actually has no bearing at all on your regeneration. Now, it may have something to do and can have something to do with your conversion. That is, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and put your faith in him. But the sinner's prayer has nothing at all to do with the person's regeneration. That's already happened before you actually pray the prayer. But as I said, we've already talked about that particular part. And uh, if you didn't get all of that, you can review it from last week's message. Uh, the sinner's prayer is an invention of revivalism. It's an invention of that particular period of time. And as I said, use that in conversion. That would be all right. But you can't talk about it in the sense of regeneration. Now, the second one is where we're going to spend uh, all of our time tonight. And really shouldn't be a great amount of time. And that is the, the second sacred cow is the altar call. The altar call. Now, as I said, there, there are some sacred cows here. And these, this particular one is, is one that people think is thoroughly, completely, through and through, baptistic. That the altar call, that's a part of the Bible. And that's something that you have to use. Well, in fact, before the 1820s, there was never one who ever heard Never one, no, no one ever heard of an altar call. There was no such thing used as an altar call. But interestingly, I've been to meetings where I've heard evangelists preach, and they'll say, well, what you need to do is you need to come down to the front to an old-fashioned altar. When in fact, Baptists never heard of an altar call. There's nothing old-fashioned about it all because you can't find it in history. You can't find it in the Bible. And Finney was the one who started that. He, he started it back about the 1820s or the 1830s. And so in a Baptist church, not only is an altar call not old-fashioned, it wasn't heard of until Finney in the 19th century. Now, when he started the whole thing, he didn't call it an altar call. The first thing that it was called was the anxious bench. Altar wasn't, the term altar call wasn't used until later. It was called the anxious bench. And that meant if you were anxious about something, I mean, the preacher had preached to you and through his manipulation, he convinced you to do whatever you're going to do. And you get very anxious about that. You get emotionally disturbed about that. And so he would say, come down to the anxious bench. And that's where they would deal with people in salvation. Now today, of course, Baptists talk about coming down the front to the altar. Come to the altar. But Baptists really have never recognized an altar. A Baptist church has never had an altar. The only altar that we believe in is the altar of the cross. That's where Jesus Christ was sacrificed. We don't have an altar in the church. In fact, we don't want an altar where a person can physically come to it. 
So we're not going to have, we do have a cross in the baptistry over there, but we're not going to go to that cross, and I'm not going to have a call where it says you've got to go and kneel down before the cross or do anything like that, because what happens when you set up a place like that, if you set up a, a cross to come to, or even this part of the church, and you tell people that this is a sacred place and it's a different place, it's different from being back there against the wall or anywhere else in the church, then you've just created an idol. The altar can be an idol. And we don't have those. The Baptists have never had that in their churches. Now, I ask you if you would, if you would turn to Acts chapter 8. And I think that we can find in this passage the typical way that the gospel was preached and the typical response expected by someone whose heart had been opened by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, verse number 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they uh, went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, we're breaking in there to the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch at the point that Philip began to preach to him the gospel. Now, there are two things that are readily apparent to us in the Scripture. And number one is that, that Philip did not ask him to pray for his salvation. And then number two, he didn't ask him to kneel at an altar. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when all of these people, 3,000 of them, heard Peter's message, the conclusion of that message, when they came to that, they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter did not say, Well, well, if you're really convicted about this, the thing that you need to do is come up here to my little platform and kneel before my altar. When Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, there weren't any prayers and there weren't any altars. Uh, Paul did say, Lord, what would you have me to do? But that was the response of a heart that had already been opened up by the Holy Spirit. So you can comb the scriptures and look any place that you want to look and you're not going to find a place where someone was told to come to the front of the church, to kneel down at the front of the church and ask Jesus to come into their heart. And if you can find one place that's like that, then I'll come over to your side. Or maybe I should say I'll come over to the Bible side and I will believe that if you can find one place in the Bible where it says it. Now the question we would have to ask then, is it wrong to come here? Is it wrong to have a call for people and say, you know, you can come up here and we can deal with you in the matter of salvation? Well, I would say that no, that's not wrong. It only becomes wrong when you teach people that this is the place where it happens. When you couple this, the altar call, with decisional regeneration and people are made to think that the deciding step that proves their faith is their willingness to go to a certain place in the church, that would be wrong. Moving from there to up here is not going to help anybody in their salvation. And when people are taught that this is actually your public identification with Christ, then they've been taught wrongly, especially when they're told this is an act that almost always has to be performed. That when you're in church and you want to be saved, the thing that you do is you go to the front of the church. 
Charles Spurgeon, who lived through all of this, who lived through the era, uh, era of revivalism, invited people to come to Christ, but he never said anything to anyone about coming to an altar. He never asked anyone to move to the front. And neither did he like what was then also called an inquiry room. That was another name for their anxious bench or the altar call, whatever, the inquiry room. And he thought that you shouldn't tell people to do that because he thought that the decisions were handled improperly, decisions were hasty. Much of what's done is because of emotionalism and not because of the Holy Spirit. When George Whitfield preached, the sermon was actually the invitation The sermon is preaching to people and telling them to flee to Jesus Christ and not to go to any particular place in the church, not encouraged to go up front in order that they might receive their consultation about their salvation. Now, none of these people, none of these before the time of Finney ever used what we use today, what's called an invitation. Nobody used an invitation. Nobody used the altar call. And that's because it was never needed. But today, in a church service, it's considered to be incomplete, considered to be non-evangelistic if there is no altar call, if there is no appeal at the end of the service for people to come to the front. Well, does that mean that it's wrong and it's sinful to give an invitation at the end of the service? No, I don't think that it is. But it's certainly not necessary. What we have to do is we have to step back and we have to consider why do we do this? What is the purpose of it? What are we actually doing at the end of the service? Well, I've been to many services, and I'm sure that you have too, where the entire service is, is just geared to get to the end. That preaching is for the point of getting to the end. And there are these long, protracted invitations that are given and emotional appeals that are given and tear-jerking stories that are told. And the preacher begs and he pleads, he cajoles, and the whole affair is concocted in order to get people to the front where these decisions can be made. And so the preacher will reason and con- reason and continue to reason, and he's not going to shut it down until somebody comes to the front. And if it doesn't happen, if nobody comes, then there's a Sunday that's gone by that is a ministerial failure. Everything is governed by the numbers that walk the aisles. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is listen to preachers' conversations. Between preachers, the measurement of success of the ministry is how many people are counted, how many cards are signed, how many professions of faith are there, real or otherwise. That's the standard by which a ministry is measured. Well, if you think like that, I mean, if you think that that's what has to happen, then you can well understand how the invitation then becomes a tactical maneuver. The invitation is for that purpose. Just get people down the aisle. And if that's what you have to do, then you can use any method that it takes in order to do that. Well, we have to ask why. Why is it so necessary? Why is it so necessary to get people from back there up here? What if you preached a sermon and you never said anything at all, never said a word about moving from back there to up here? Could people still be saved? Well, let me give you a little interesting factoid about the song, Just As I Am. How many of you know the song, Just As I Am? Like, you're a Baptist, you've got to know that song. Just As I Am. Most of you have been at an invitation time when Just As I Am is sung, 
and you have heard all of the verses of just as I am. There are five of those verses, I believe, if I remember correctly. There are five of those. And I've been in services where just as I am has been sung 20 times or more. And through each set of singing through those verses, the preacher pleads a little bit harder. And if nobody comes, then that is a sign, supposedly a sign of unbelief. It's a sign that people are resisting the Holy Spirit. I mean, isn't that right? I mean, isn't that what you've been told or what you think? That if people are not going to come when the song is being sung, then they're resisting God's Holy Spirit. Now, far be it from me that, that I would myself resist any real movement of the Holy Spirit. I'm not actually here to judge that, whether the Holy Spirit moves or not. But I think it's interesting that with that song, Just As I Am, that when Charlotte Elliott wrote that in 1836, that it was a song that was actually written for invalids. It was written for people who were helpless, and they were infirm, and they couldn't actually move anywhere. I mean, do you really understand the meaning of of the words in just as I am? It's not about movement of the feet. It's not about coming to the front of a church. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. It's not actually about moving physically anywhere. It's about something that happens in your heart. It's about moving to God with faith in your heart. So the song is all about the heart, and it's about people who cannot come because of their sins. These are people that cannot move to Christ because they're as helpless in their heart as they are in their feet. And so you can read the words of that song as many times as you want. Read it once, twice, read it three times, and you're never going to come to a conclusion that in this song there's anything there that tells people that they must come to the front of a church. This has to do with what happens in the heart. And Charlotte Elliott did not write it for the purpose of trying to get people to come forward in an invitation. Now you and I, we, we, we can fool ourselves about this. We know exactly why altar calls are given. The purpose is to get people down the aisles to accept Christ. And, and I will tell you this, truly, truly, there couldn't be a greater result from the preaching of the gospel than for people to come to Christ. I mean, that's the whole purpose of his preaching, isn't it? And so we do encourage people to come to Christ. But the altar call is given for this purpose. It's in that altar call that you can get the profession of faith. I mean, how many times have you heard Romans 10.9 used in an altar call? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. In Romans 10.13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what they do is they equate calling with the name of the Lord and calling on Christ for salvation is to come to the front. And that's where all of it takes place. Just a few days ago I heard this. Uh, A man said, a preacher said this at the end of the service, you should not be afraid. You should not be ashamed. If you sit back there, your decision is not real. You must confess Christ. So come to the front and declare your faith in him. That is classical decisional regeneration. Your decision is not real unless... Now here's a news flash for you folks. Regeneration is real when the Holy Spirit moves like the wind, not unless. Now today I I almost shudder when I hear things uh, like this in invitations. For years I I had this, this buried in my brain, 
bow your head and close your eyes. I promise that I'm not going to embarrass you. I promise that I'm not going to ask you to do anything. If you're not saved, I just want to pray for you. If you'll just slip up your hand, I just want to pray for you. I'll not ask you to do anything. And the person raises their hand and the preacher says, Bless you, I see your hand. And no sooner are those words said than he says, You need to get up here to the front. Don't be ashamed. Get up here to the front. And so it's not the pastor who shames them. They're shaming themselves because they don't come to the front of the church. Well, that's what happens when preachers take on the responsibility of doing the Holy Spirit's work. It becomes their job to convince people to believe. They're attempting to get the decision, which is not at all the way that people are regenerated. But if that's what you think... If that's the way that you think it happens, then the tactics have to be employed. There has to be a method to use. When actually, look through the scriptures, there is no semblance at all of that being used in the scriptures. So where did it come from? Well, we trace it right back here to the 18th, 19th century. How did the church actually survive for 1,800 years when nobody gave an invitation? How did the church survive and people get saved when nobody issued an altar call? How does that happen? Well, here's what Charles Finney said. He, he actually wrote books about this. He said this in his lectures on revival. He said, preach to him, and at the moment he thinks he is willing to do anything, bring him to the test. Call on him to do something, to make a step that, will, that shall identify him with the people of God. If you say to him, there's the anxious seat, or as we would say, there is the altar. Come out and avow your determination to be on the Lord's side. And if he is not willing to do a small thing as that, then he is not willing to do anything for Christ. Where do you see Jesus and Paul or any of the apostles using a tactic like that? Where is there any hint in the scriptures at all where the Bible says that you have to do something, just a small thing in order to prove that your regeneration is real, that you have it. You won't find anything like that in the Bible because that's not biblical regeneration. That is decisional regeneration. And so that's what Finney used. That's how he got so many confessions. That method was later picked up by, by Dwight Moody, and then by Billy Sunday, and then by John R. Rice, and then by Billy Graham, and hundreds of others. And they had huge success, huge success, getting professions of faith. Now, all that I'm asking you to do tonight is just to be fair about it. It's not whether, whether I like it. It's not whether you like it. What did they do in the Scriptures? What's the practice of the Scriptures? What's been done throughout history? We could go back just to the first Great Awakening. What was done then? None of that. This is a pure invention of just one period of time the revivalism of the 19th century. And folks, we just haven't gotten over it yet. Uh, we just haven't taught the truth about this. So what am I saying to you? Well, let, let's regroup here for just a second. Is it wrong to use an altar call? Well, you, you've been around here long enough to know that I very strenuously object to the terminology. I don't like the term altar call because I just told you there is no altar in a Baptist church, so I'm not going to go along with that. But is it wrong to invite someone to come to the front of the church? Is the concept itself actually wrong? Well, it's not needed, but it's not 
necessarily wrong. It's not wrong unless you couple it with decisional regeneration. Now, there's actually a built-in danger of that happening. But if you can keep all of that out, I mean, if you can stick to the truth on this matter and you can teach that regeneration is totally by the Holy Spirit, you can keep all that other stuff out, maybe you can pull it off. And that's okay. Now, in this church, I'm never going to tell you that Jesus is standing outside of your door and he can't come in because you won't let him come in. And I'm not going to tell you that Jesus would like to save you, but you won't let him save you. You're just too stubborn. I'm not going to tell you that Jesus has done all that he can do for you, and so the next move is up to you. That's the modern altar call. Now, the, uh, the central figure in all of this is you. You have to do something. You have to move from back there to up here, and if you don't do that, then you're forever lost. Well, you're not going to hear me say those things. You'll hear me say things like, you can't move. You'll hear me say that in your heart, you're helpless, you're an invalid. You're just like an invalid. You can't do anything for yourself. You'll hear me say that if you feel any desire at all to come to Jesus Christ and to believe in him, the reason that you have that desire is because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now. And you surrender to the will of the Holy Spirit. But you'll never come to that place on your own. Only the Holy Spirit can lead you there. And so you will hear me say, Oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come, because I know that you are being led by the Holy Spirit to the Father. You're not going to hear me say that you have to come up here to do it. And you won't hear me say that you have to go back there to do it when we've got men that are standing back there. I don't say you have to go back there to do it. I'm not going to tell you you have to go anywhere to do it. This is something that you do in your heart. Something that takes place in your heart. It's not a movement of your feet to go to any particular physical place in the church. And then another thing that I won't do is that I won't give you assurance of eternal life. Now I can tell you this, that if you'll believe in Jesus Christ, if you will repent of your sins and you trust him, then you will have eternal life. But, the Holy, but, but as a preacher, I can't assure you, and neither one else can anyone else assure that you have eternal life. That assurance only comes through the outworking of God in your life. That's where the evidence of whether you have eternal life comes from. What happens afterwards, after you said you believed in him? I mean, how many people have made professions of faith that aren't real? Just just go and look at Charles Finney. I mean, there, there are thousands, multiple thousands of them. The whole ministry of Charles Finney is littered with casualties. And then secondly, let me add this. Um, I did say it can be right to give an invitation at the end of a sermon. But the fact that you sing songs at the end, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong. Neither one of those is right or wrong. Can people be saved without an invitation? Well, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God when it's preached. And if you put a song in the place of the Word in order to bring people to Christ, then you really don't understand Romans 1.16. And so I, I, I never really worry about visible results in a service. Have you ever noticed that? I don't push for it. I don't push to try to get people to make some kind of decision to, to come to the front. And I don't stay on that and say, that's what you ought to do. I don't push for that. And the reason that I don't, I mean, I mean, if it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, that's fine too. And the reason for it is, that's the Holy Spirit's business. That's not my business. It's not my business to get decisions. All that I do is preach the word. All that we do is plant the seeds. 
And maybe it takes a day, maybe it takes a month, maybe it takes a year, maybe it takes ten years, I don't know. All that I'm responsible to do is to give the word of God. We plant seeds, we don't make them grow. The Apostle Paul said, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Increased. Now let me quote to you from Fred Zaspel. He said, but all of this really says nothing about the propriety of the altar call. The altar call is for a man to physically move from one point to another. The gospel call is for a man to flee to Christ. The gospel call is for a man to spiritually identify with Christ through faith, to reach out with the hand of faith and lay hold of him who is life. Accordingly, the duty of the evangelist is to command and even plead with men to, to come to him, to run to him for refuge. But this must never be confused with a command to move anywhere physically. Neither Jesus nor his apostles ever instructed anyone that in order to be saved, they must come to the front or come for prayer or go to the inquiry room or go to any geographical location. They needn't go anywhere. They were exhorted to go to Christ and nowhere else. Moreover, they are exhorted and assured that going to him, they need go nowhere else. Now, having said all of that, is there a danger in the altar call? Well, I, I have mentioned about tactical stealth techniques that are used. We talked about that last week. Evangelists use that. Preachers use that. I mean, many evangelists want to make sure of this. They want to make sure that they get, that they get a second opportunity to preach in a church. Now, how are you going to do that? How is he going to guarantee, I don't know where that's coming from, uh, how is he going to get a guarantee that, that um, he's going to get an invitation back to a church? Well, we would say, if he's preaching revival, you've got to have results. You've got to have decisions made. That, that's how we measure the success of revival. Now, when did you ever hear that a revival was great when there weren't any decisions that were made? Or where have you heard of a, a revival that really was successful unless it's measured by the number of people who walk down the aisles? You see, revival doesn't come until the statistics tell you that it's come. Now, if you were to ask Finney about that and say, is that revival? He would say yes. If you asked Charles about that, is that revival? He would say no. I don't know what we got going on, Bob. You want me to take this off? Would that help? Yeah, okay, let's switch to the other. It's driving me crazy. I don't know what it's doing for you. So you ask Spurgeon about that. Spurgeon says, no, that, that's not revival. Now, Spurgeon was concerned that he never get a, got a sinner fixated on anything but Christ. I mean, how much sense does it make to, to confuse a person with the fear of coming up in front of, of all of the people how much sense does it make to confuse him with that rather than to leave him where he is thinking about what he's supposed to do with Christ? How is he supposed to answer the gospel call? What's taking place in his heart? So why do you want to, why do you want to put him in a place where he may be thinking more about the embarrassment, if that's how he looks at it, of coming in front of a crowd? So Spurgeon never said, come to the altar. And again, he did know the tactics of the day. And so what he would say was, go to God at once. Even right now, where you are, go to God. Cast yourself upon Christ ere you stir an inch. Now, if Spurgeon was alive today and, and he were to preach in a, in a normal Baptist meeting, that is, that is, even if a Baptist church would let him preach in the meeting, he would say to them, 
don't even think about coming up here to the front. Stay right where you are. Don't move an inch. Get yourself to Christ. Well, that would shock most Baptists today, wouldn't it? I think that would shock them. Should we follow what Spurgeon said, the old-time Baptists who believe like we do, or should we follow the tactics of a heretic like Finney? Do you really need me to answer that question for you? So what am I saying here? Well, you know, we're going round and round this issue. The, the altar call can actually be more harmful than helpful. And this happens when you have created a new unbiblical category of salvation that's called coming to the front and coming to shake the preacher's hand. And when you put that in there and say, this is a part of all that takes place, that has to take place in order for you to be saved, then you have just gone beyond the theological and historical position of the church. When you confuse people that going to the front is a part of saving faith, as I've just given you an example, then you've also given them a false means of assurance. And that happens many, many times. In times of doubt, People go back to the memory of walking down an aisle. They go back to the memory of shaking the preacher's hand, and that's where they find their assurance of salvation. And that's how decisional regeneration rivals, in fact, baptismal regeneration, because there are people that say, well, after all, I did get baptized. They're in a period of doubt when they're not sure that they're actually saved, and they will say, well, I did get baptized, and so that's got to be proof of something. And they do the same thing with their decision. Well, yes, I walked the aisle. Yes, I came and I shook the preacher's hand. So in my times of doubt, I can look back to that and, and I can say, well, I must be saved because I've done those things. But that's not how you find your assurance. When you want to find assurance of your salvation, I'll tell you this. Don't look back at anything. Don't look back at a decision you've made. Don't look back at the fact that you went into the waters of the baptism. Of baptism. What you need to do to find assurance of your salvation is to look into your heart right now. What is it that I believe about Jesus Christ? Am I truly a believer in Him? Have I shown evidence of that in my life? Am I really a Christian? Look at where you are right now, not where you were in the past. That's where you find your assurance of salvation. Now, a preacher cannot give you assurance. That's not his job, to give you assurance. The preacher can't know what you've really believed in your heart. That's impossible for me to know. You, you see, I have seen many seeds that spring up, and to me, they look like they're real. They, these are actually real Christians, but then you watch them for a little while, and, and they, they go their way. They fizzle out. They start to, they go back to their old lifestyle. They live like a devil. And so I don't want to be the one that has given them false assurance that they think that they're okay because they came up here and they shook my hand and I pronounced them saved. Or I gave them a prayer to pray. And, and so now I say, you're saved. You're sure. You're going to heaven. No doubt about it. Welcome to the family of God. I don't want to be your assurance. Your assurance comes from God Himself, believing in Him, knowing where your faith is. Now, I know that there are preachers that are big into altar calls. And they would tell you about everything that I've said just now. They would say, absolutely not. No, no, no. I do not believe in this thing that you're calling decisional regeneration. I, I believe that the Holy Spirit has to move on a person's heart. He has to work in a person's heart. It's the Spirit alone that brings a person to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit alone regenerates people. 
And folks, I can applaud that. And I can support that. And I can say, that's all right. If you're preaching that way and that's what you believe, when you call people, that's fine with me. But if I see them go off into the tactic and they act as if the Holy Spirit is a million miles away and they go into the maneuvers and all of that to try to get their decisions, then I'm going to tell them you're not practicing what you preach. What is it that you actually believe? What takes place at the end of the service? Now the big, big piece that's missed here is that the gospel is so radical and the cross is so foolish and the heart is so depraved that a preacher can never convince anyone with his persuasion that that person should come to Christ. We can't convince them to do that. Now what the Apostle Paul said was, I don't preach in the wisdom of men. I don't find the book of tactics in here. I don't find the soul winner's guide in here. Do you? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen the instructions on how to do this? Now we just look to the example of the Word of God. We, we look at that and we say, well, it's God who's doing this. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that a 45-minute invitation is no better than a 5-minute invitation. One's not any better than the other. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? That it wouldn't make any difference if we sang ten verses of a song at the end or whether we sang one or didn't sing at all? Would that make a difference? Well, that brings me to the last point for this evening. What about those who got saved because of an invitation? Now, I just want you to be honest with me tonight. How many of you can hold up your hand and say that you got saved because of an invitation? Okay. That's a trick question. Nobody actually got saved because of an invitation. Um, singing songs at the end of a service never saved anybody. Now, if a person gets saved during an invitation, we praise God for that. But that doesn't mean that they got saved because of the invitation. Now, let me explain to you. This brings us back full circle. Do you give an invitation for people to be saved? Is that why you give an invitation? Well, we would say no, because people aren't saved by invitations. And so you would say, well, what about all those people that, that, that go out without making a decision? The preacher decided to cut the invitation short, or the preacher didn't give an invitation at all. He didn't say anything about coming to the front. What about those people who go out without making a decision for Christ? What about them? They're lost. Those people that go out without trusting Christ, are lost. They're not saved unless the Holy Spirit works in the heart. Now you understand this, that if it's for any other reason than that, that the Holy Spirit works in the heart, then what I ought to do is start every service with an invitation. And I ought not to let up on the invitation all the way through the service. And every part of what I say should be begging and pleading for people to come to Christ if it's the invitation that saves them. Is that clear to everybody? That's what you would need to do if that's what you believe. If the invitation saves people, then stay in the invitation all the time. Don't stop. And this is what some preachers do when they say that the most important part of the service is to get us in the invitation. Gear us, the service is geared to get to the invitation when they don't actually believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't need an invitation. His Word is the invitation. His Word, that's the invitation. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to get people saved. And that's all He ever used. So Peter didn't say, bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to sing just as I am. Bless you, I see that hand. Come to the front and kneel at the altar and then you can be saved. He didn't have to. 
Because when he got to the end of the sermon, the Holy Spirit was already there. And the people were moved to say, what shall we do? They asked excitedly, what must we do? And, and Peter didn't say, come to the altar. Philip didn't say, would you like to bow your head and say a prayer with me? The eunuch said, here is water, what doth hinder me? from being baptized. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was there and the Holy Spirit had already programmed the response. So the point I'm trying to make to you tonight is that invitations and altars don't save anybody. And your theology about what actually saves people dictates what you will do in the invitation. Is it decisional regeneration? If it is, then you need to get decisions. Anything else and you failed God. And that's what many preachers believe. They're a failure to God if they haven't got this many people each week to come down the front in an invitation. There are some ministries that, that will fire ministers and fire helpers because they didn't get enough people down the aisles. And so it's just like, we do this thing. This is the energy of the flesh. This is not the Holy Spirit that does anything. And if you haven't done it, you failed God. Folks, that's a weight that I don't want to carry. I don't want the weight of saving people. Do you understand that? I, I can't carry that weight on my shoulders. I have to leave that to God. And so what I think that I'll do is I'll just keep preaching like an old-time Baptist. I'll just preach the way that they preach and just teach that the Holy Spirit regenerates people and I'll let Him call them to repentance and faith. Now one more time so we don't go out with a whole lot of confusion about what's been said tonight. I'm not, I'm not crucifying everybody that uses an altar call. Neither am I saying that anybody that came to an invitation and there they were dealt with and there they received Christ, that that's an unholy and an unbiblical thing that should happen. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that what we can't do is we cannot confuse those things with the reason that people are saved, the reason that they are regenerated. As I said a moment ago, for 1,800 years, there never was an altar call in a church. There never was an invitation that was sung. And millions upon millions of people got saved. And the church has been perpetuated through all of those centuries without it ever happening one time. And what should that tell you? It should go right back to this. That it's the Holy Spirit who does this. And when we add the tactics and the manipulation to try to make it happen, we're just going to mess things up. Because we're not working the way the scriptures tell us to work. So that's a sacred cow that actually needs to be sacrificed. There's a lot of criticism that needs to be made for the altar call and the way it's conducted today. Because it's simply not a biblical thing. We can have an altar call, but if, I don't like the term altar. Excuse me for saying that. We can have a call for people to come to Christ. I can tell you to come up here and I'd like to talk to you about it and those kinds of things. But I'm never going to confuse you that your trip from back there up here has anything to do with whether you can be saved. This takes place in the heart right where you sit. And I'd much, much, much rather have you sit back there and receive Jesus into your heart than to be confused about something that you do up here. Now let me explain something to you because you, you might wonder about this sometimes because you don't see a lot of people walking the aisles at Berean Baptist Church. One of the reasons I said a moment ago, I don't push for it. I'm not trying to, to, to twist people's arm to get them down the front. But do you know that when people hear the gospel of Christ, I've never had to do that. They've always come to me. When they want to be saved and they want to talk about what they've heard in church they always come to me. I don't have to go tackle them and drag them down and say, you know, I need to get you saved today. Now, when the Holy Spirit works, He directs the person in the direction He wants them to go. 
so I don't have to do all of those things, and I don't want to do them. I want to leave the work to the Holy Spirit. That's why we operate the way we do. That's why, or you see how theology has changed in the last 120, 150 years. It's a different way because people have a different mindset about what actually takes place at the end of a service. Who does the saving? Is it your decision or is it God's decision? And that governs how you handle invitations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've had tonight. And we do want to make this very clear, Lord, that uh, you are the one who saves. We can't do anything to, to cause people to be saved. We can preach the gospel. That's all you've told us to do. And you'll take that word and you'll use it as you see fit. We like to sing songs at the end, and uh, we love it when people come to make a profession of faith, but we also know we don't have to encourage them to come to the front. We just want them to go to you. And when they've come to you, when, they, when they've broken down and they see themselves as sinners and they repent of their sins and they put their faith in you, you'll save them no matter where they are. And then, Lord, they do the next step, the things that are right as far as following you in baptism and being obedient to you in the other areas of the faith. Bless us, Lord. Help us to understand these things. Help us to teach truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.